from New York City. Welcome to Mark to Markets, where we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. You can always reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com, or you can call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, we're at the midpoint in the year, and I thought it would be a good time to be reflective on what's happened in the first six months of the year. And to do that, I brought in client advisor Amanda Beebe. Amanda, thanks for joining. Happy to be here, Mark. So I'm going to put the ball in your court and, and see what you have heard from clients and what's on their mind. And, and hopefully we'll have a, an interactive dialogue and discussion to try and get on uh, the topics that are most interesting to people out there. So I turn it over to you. Awesome. Well, since we last got together on the podcast, I want to know first, how have your, your uh, predictions for 2019 since January come out so far? So I, w- I was preparing for today's podcast, and, and I did this weird thing. I, I listened back to what I had said in January. And, and what struck me isn't how right or how wrong I was, and we can talk about that. What I was more struck by is how much I think the story is nearly exactly the same as when it was then. We talked about volatility. We talked about geopolitical risk. And if I were to or you were to go back and listen to that podcast and you didn't know it was from January 1st, other than the fact that the markets have rallied a ton and we can talk about that, I think we're in a very similar place. Think, think about it from um, a where we were then versus where we are now. Markets are up. Today is the 26th of June. So the S&P 500 is up roughly 17% going into this morning's trading. The difference, though, with a market that's up 17%, if you think about the big stories, do you think trade is any better than it was when we talked about this in January? My bet would be no. Is the Brexit or Euro situation better than it was in January? I would say no. Is economic data any better than it was when we were talking about it in January? Probably not. And so I think there's this disconnect between a market that's up 17% and a storyline that's basically the same as it was in December, January, except for the fact that things probably on the margins are a little bit worse and the market's up 17%. So I think that's an interesting dichotomy. If you said to me, what did you get right? What did you get wrong? I think the thing we got most right is the call that there would be a whole lot of volatility. And you don't have to think back very much. This month's up going into this morning on the S&P 500, just about 6%. Last month, it was down 6%. It may not feel that way, but that's a lot of volatility in two months. So I I think the forecast that you'd see a lot of volatility in in 2019 has been right. Although when the volatility is up 17% on the S&P, everybody's happy with it. It's not that volatility that I think people get nervous about. So I think the volatility call was the thing that was most accurate. And and if you look at what we were forecasting for markets, the thing I basically said is I have no idea what's going to happen over the next six months because of these big issues. So I stand by that notion that I was right. I didn't know. And I wouldn't have told you we were going to be up 17%. But I thought it was entirely possible. So then why did the, ma- the market rally a ton then? If things aren't that much better and things... the macro issues seem to be the same. What are the nuances that made the, the market rally? So, so I think it's two things. One, I think the market was just too cheap when we had this discussion on January 1. You're, you're coming off of December, and I think we forget this, but December was down 9%, and it was down even more than that before we had that post-Christmas rally. So December was really bad. Fourth quarter overall in the U.S., markets were down 13 14%. So I think they were a bit too cheap. And, and there was a pivot in terms of um, concerns. If you were thinking about what we were talking about in the fourth quarter, the concerns were, would the Fed get it wrong? Would they continue to hike rates? Would they be too hawkish or aggressive? Now everyone thinks the Fed will be more dovish. So, so that's a big one. The trade story hasn't really changed, but I think there was more fears about a global recession in the immediacy than there is now. I think people still think about a global recession or a U.S. recession, but they don't think it's happening now. 
So if you have the Fed a little bit better, a little bit less worry, and you have markets that had just sold off 10 or 15 percent, you get this rally. Now, it's nice to say we're up 17 percent, but a good part of that is snapback from the loss in fourth quarter. Going back to January, what was your advice back then for investors and listeners, and how does that compare to your advice now? So I think, well, I'll tell you what I said then. The thing I said, I'm going to try and quote myself roughly. I, I basically said, you have to have the right amount of risk for you. And so this gets nuanced, right? When you turn on the TV, the radio, you watch CNBC, Bloomberg, they're all giving really good information. This is not a criticism of any of them. But a lot of that advice is given in the vacuum of like, if you're an institutional investor and you're trying to generate return. In the world that we play in, most of our clients and the people we talk to are individuals who have very specific goals. And so what you've got to think about is, given where you are as an investor in life and the risk you're willing to take in this stage in life, do I have the appropriate amount of risk for any and all risk environments? I think that's the term I used back in January. Do I have the amount, the right amount of exposure to stock if markets go great, if markets go terrible, and am I comfortable with that? If I have a thoughtful discussion with my advisor and I'm not comfortable with that risk profile, I've got to change it. But it's not that I'm changing it because I think I know something about China or I think I know something about the U.S. economy. It's just I think I know something about the risk I'm taking and I am or I'm not comfortable with that and I've got to get to a place where I'm comfortable. So that was the broad advice. I would say that was really good advice because if you did that, you had the right exposure to U.S. equities and U.S. equities are up in the teens going into today. And foreign markets are also up double digits. So, so you captured that exposure. We were pretty clear in saying, don't, don't go to cash, right? We, the notion I talked about back in January was, if you're worried about the world, one of, the, I think, the most emotionally satisfying things is to say, I'm not going to play ball. I'm just going to go to cash and avoid it. And my take on that was, actually, you are making a decision. You're, you're taking an active decision to get out of the game. And oh, by the way, you just missed this rally or you missed it on whatever amount of money you, you went to cash in. By the way, that, that is not uncommon. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at some data here. The six-month flow is in and out of markets. So this is from fourth quarter of 2018 through the end of March 2019. $17.8 billion came out of the market. Now, it largely came out because people got really scared in fourth quarter. And that $17.8 billion that moved to cash or bonds or got out of the market missed this rally. And so my, my point would be, if you're thinking not about, do I know something about where China's going to go? Do I know something about where Brexit's going to go in the short term? And you think more about, where am I trying to get long term? And that's going to be different for everyone. I think it helps you figure out how much risk you should take. The best example I can think about for this is, is my own personal situation. So let's go back to 2008, which is now unbelievably 11 years ago. At that point in time, I'm a younger financial advisor at Bernstein. I'm renting an apartment. I've got no wife or kids. My, my ability to take risk was effectively infinite. And as markets declined through 2008, remember, we were at 14,000 at the Dow. It went through 12,000 and 10,000 and eight and down to about 6,500. And it was painful. I bought that market all the way down. And my answer to people asked me was, I have to be the person being a buyer in this stage. My real risk, my life risk, right, is virtually none. If this doesn't work out, I'm moving home with my parents. It's fine, right? And I can rebuild a career at that stage in my life. Today, where I am as, as a father and married and with responsibilities, it's not clear that I can buy all that risk all the way down. I can buy some of it, but I probably can't buy it all the way down, right? Because I have a different liquidity profile. I have a different need for capital profile than I did then. And what happens is I think in the mass media, it's like 
the Dow's at 2,500, are you a buyer or a seller? And my answer is, I don't know who you are, right? And so the client in 2008, who was just getting ready for retirement and was watching me buy the Dow and the S&P as it fell, there's a very good chance I was telling them, you shouldn't be doing that because if we're wrong here, you don't want to be working till you're 85. And you don't want to lose capital that's effectively irreplaceable for you, but not irreplaceable for me because I've got an income stream for the next 40 years to make up for it. And so I think you have to think about how much risk are you taking in the context of your own situation, not in the context of the PE multiple of the market is X or Y. Sure, it informs you, and it definitely informs how we position a portfolio, but I don't think it's the driver in in how you build a portfolio for an individual investor. So you've mentioned the Fed. You just brought up 08. Do you think that given the Fed's stance roughly six months ago compared to where it stands today, do you think that we're headed for a recession? No. I mean, I, I think eventually there'll be one. There, there's been all of these... Um, discussions on TV, we've even had it inside the firm as, are we in the first inning of the of the recovery? Are we in the ninth inning? Are we in extra innings? Are we in double overtime? And there's all these stupid sports comparisons to where we are. And, and the term we've often used is we're, we're in the middle innings. But I, I think the way to think about it is, I think there are some people who are forecasting a recession solely because this has been going on for, and this being going on, consistent, slow U.S. growth has gone on basically since 2009. So you're 10 years in, and you get to the point where you'd say, well, after 10 years of expansion, we got to go the other way. So we did some work, and we looked at other major economies across the globe. And what you find is that there are many economies, not all of them, but there are many that have had expansions that run 15, 20, 27, 28 years. Australia has been growing from 1991 to today. China's been in a 30-year growth cycle. Um, you don't think about it, but Finland, Sweden, Norway have been growing since the early 90s. So a 10-year growth cycle is really long in the U.S. If you think more broadly, it's not unprecedented globally by any means. I'd also say this has never been a recovery where we've been growing at Five or six percent a year. This has been two to three percent growth for the better part of a decade, coming off of a significant financial crisis. So I don't see a recession in the near term. When you talk to our U.S. economists at Bernstein, they would say the same thing. We do think the economy is slowing, but still growing, and so you've got to adjust to a slower pace. And I think a lot of the Fed commentary is is along those lines. And do you think the market is still mostly focused on geopolitical issues? I feel like in the headlines, it's either China, Europe, Brexit. I think we're coming up on, what, the three-year anniversary of that? It's What are your thoughts? So I, I think it's entirely geopolitical, um, it, at least in the short term. And and not to say that it's not important, but, but that's, for most clients who are thinking over the course of a decade or more, truthfully, it's noise. And so the noise was good this morning when Steve Mnuchin said we might get a deal or there's 90% of a deal worked out. So markets are up 150 points. And yesterday that that data or that that news wasn't as positive. So markets are down 150 or 200 points. And I don't think for, for most of the people who are thinking about their retirement or their family, they're trying to day trade this market. You know, if you are trying to day trade this market, there's nothing wrong with trying to do that. But but then this noise is critical, right? Because you could get whipsawed in your favor or against you based on all of these types of headlines. But I do think it's true the geopolitical headlines are driving the market. If I think back to what we talked about in January, I said the same thing then. You know, the, the stories here haven't changed. And in listening to the conversation from January, we talked about, is there more of a connection between D.C. and politics and what I'll broadly call as New York and Wall Street than there has been in the past. And I think the argument still is today, yes. 
And the reason for that is, I think, quite simple. A lot of the things we're talking about on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times or CNN or CNBC or Fox News, doesn't matter, I, I think are ultimately, or, or at least in part, economically based, right? Tax policy definitely impacts companies and investors. Uh, trade policy absolutely impacts companies, investors, and the stock market. All of these issues tend to be in one way, shape, or form financially based. Uh, by the way, that that shouldn't be all that surprising. Uh, Trump came into office talking he was a businessman and he was going to really work on the country standing from a business perspective in the world. Whether or not you agree with that, it's clearly an economic concern. And so I think a lot of the things when you watch the Democratic debates over the next few nights or, or whatever it is you're focused on, often are in and of themselves economic discussions that have a political component. Brexit, the euro in and of itself, is an economic organization. And, and sure, the politics of whether the, the um, European Union and even countries around the world outside of there are becoming more nationalist or not, yeah, it's politics, but, but it also has significant economic concerns. So I think what's happened is the discussions that financial advisors and market commentary, com uh, mar people who talk about markets are having, are more often than not touching on politics and geopolitical, geopolitical issues because the issues in the political sphere today are very much economic at their heart. Any final words before we reconvene six months from now? <laughs> Wow, in 15 minutes, I've cleared the deck. Um, so I, I don't think you should expect anything wildly different over the next six months than you have over the prior six months. Now, that doesn't mean that the market's going to be up another 17%. Please don't, don't take it to be that way. What I would say is you have to expect geopolitical to drive it. Um, I, don't think it's it I don't think it's possible for any forecaster to believe they have a real intelligent insight as to how any of these things will play out. I think you have to be humble in that regard. And to my earlier point, the question is, do I take the right amount of risk knowing that I don't know how U.S.-China is going to play out and all these other issues? If I have the right amount of risk, I think the, the answer is very much so that you stick with the right asset allocation given your strategy. Now, that said, I think there's something we're thinking about here, which is if you're in the stage of life where you can buy risk or take on volatility, to the extent there is volatility and we have a 5, 10, 15, 20% sell-off, whatever that is, I would buy into that because if I don't need the money for 10 or 15 years, those are all buying opportunities. So I think you have to use volatility as your friend. On the flip side, if you have exposure to equity that you might need liquidity from, so I'm not saying you should have this money in equity, but if you do because of prior reasons and you're thinking about buying a home, retiring, buying a second home, an apartment, you have some need for capital and you've got a market that's up 17%, I use that volatility as an opportunity to take some profits. Now, that doesn't mean that the market can't go up from here, but if you've got a short time horizon and you've got a market that's up 10, 15, 20%, I, I think you have to take some of those profits off the table because you want to know that that money's there for you in the three, six, nine, 12 months when you need it. But again, on the flip side, if I don't need the money for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and the market sells off 5, 10, 15%, I'm buying into that. Now, I'm not buying into that if I've got that short-term liquidity need, right? So if I'm the 65 or 70-year-old client who says I'm going to make a, a major purchase from my portfolio or I'm getting ready to retire, I don't know that I buy all that volatility if the market sells off 20%. If you're Amanda or you're me, you, you got to think about it from a what's my need for the capital and what's my liability in the time horizon. Time horizon is a huge issue in this. When the market sold off in 2008, what I would say to people is, 
I know everything I'm buying now is a good buy. I just don't know when it's going to be a good buy. I know the stuff I buy at 6000 is going to be a good buy and look really smart a heck of a lot sooner than the stuff I bought at 10000 on the Dow and twelve and 14000 on the Dow. Today, sitting here 10 years later, they all look like amazing buys. Some of them look like amazing buys six months later, and some of them took two or three years. So if you have that time, buy up as much of that equity as you can and let that compound for you over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But if you don't have that time, you can't be a buyer of that equity. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? You just have to think about what's the, what's the least amount of risk I can take to the goal that I have specifically in mind for me. Then all of a sudden, I think you have to consider that there will be volatility over the next six months, no different than there was today. And, and I think we should take one second to talk about the bond market. The, the bond market had an amazing first six months of the year. The reason for that is largely interest rates have declined. When, when we did this podcast, the 10-year treasury was about at 2.6, and it had fallen from 3.2. And we talked about how that's a really big move, but if you don't live in bond markets, you wouldn't even think about it. Today, the 10-year treasury is at, just round this off, exactly 2%. So if you have yields coming from 3.2 down to 2%, for those who don't live in this world, you might say that sounds terrible. Actually, it means the price of your bonds has gone up a bunch. So you're looking at bond portfolios that are high credit quality up somewhere between 4 5 and 6%, depending on the portfolio and your manager for the first six months of the year. Do not expect another 6% from your bond portfolios in the back half of the year. If that happens, interest rates have come down a lot, and the economy is probably really materially weakened. But if you collect your coupon of 1% to 2% over the next six months and you have a 5 6 7% from a high credit quality bond portfolio over the course of 2019, I'd feel really good about that. One thing to note, I, I talked about in January that our interest rates looked pretty competitive if you thought beyond just the U.S. Looking at data today, remember the German 10-year pays a negative 0.3%. So you give your money to the German government, you're a German citizen, you don't have to be, but if you are, 10 years later, you don't even get back the $1,000 you gave the German government. Same thing in Japan. Japan, 10-year yields are negative. France is effectively zero interest rate. The UK, 10-year pays less than 1%. So when we sit here and say, God, the US 10-year pays 2%, that's not a lot. And if you go to the bank, the rates on CDs or money markets is really low. It actually looks really good comparatively to the rest of the world. So that, that's just an important data point in, in how one should think about this. Um, Last thing, I think, just to think about, you know, we've talked about here briefly China from a um, U.S.-China trade relations. But I do think China, if you're thinking long term, is an interesting market to invest in largely because, I don't think a lot of people know this, the, the the, the onshore market where Chinese stocks trade is approximately 80% retail investors. So we've done podcasts here talking about high-frequency traders, day traders, and what impact they have on the market. And I think there are a lot of investors who are skeptical about the U.S. market because of all these algorithms and computer trading. If you go to China, 80% of the market is, quote-unquote, mom-and-pop investors, mom-and-pop investors trading stock. It kind of feels like the U.S. market did 50 years ago. And so the opportunity to have a really insightful research edge in China, like you might have had in the U.S. when Mr. Bernstein founded the firm 50 years ago, exists over there today. So I think that's an interesting place to play if you've got long-term time horizon, can, are willing to live with the risk and, and believe that you can get a research edge there, which we do, I think that's just an interesting, I don't think it's an outside-the-box opportunity, but I don't think it's a, a place that people are regularly thinking about to generate return, not through Hong Kong, but onshore in China. So I'd leave that as 
uh, my last thought. Does that, that get you everything you were looking for? Good stuff. I think we're covered. <laughs> I, I tried to run a long five minutes there to cover everything. Anyway, to, to those who are listening, I, I appreciate you taking the time and listening. Um, we'll have other episodes throughout the course of the year. We're going to do one on the business of sports. I think we're going to do in September sort of a finance 101 back to school. There will be the one on um, oncology and cancer research and how that's impacting not only patient care, but investment opportunities. So until next time, like us on iTunes, Stitcher, um, wherever you're catching this podcast, share it with your friends. If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach me at mark.penzener at bernstein.com. Phone number is 212-969-6655. Until then, thanks. Thanks.